I want to dance to that music. That is, that is a funky new bumper video there. Thank you, team, for that. And welcome to everyone joining us, Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, and those who are joining us online. Well, uh, there's an old story about a young newlywed couple, and they had their first argument. Believe it or not, it was over who should make the coffee in the morning, and she insisted he should do it. He insisted that she should do that, and they, they just couldn't agree. And so finally, the wife appealed to Scripture. She said, the Bible's very clear that the man should make the coffee. He said, where does it possibly say that in the Bible? And she immediately turned to the book of Hebrews. There it is. <laughs> Hebrews, all right? Well, the book of Hebrews is definitely an unusual book in the Bible. I want to tell you... I'm a little intrigued, puzzled actually, that books like Colossians and Romans and Ephesians and so many of the other books get a lot of attention. Books like Philippians are preached on constantly. But why not Hebrews? It hardly ever gets much attention. And I must admit, over 28 years almost at Grace, I have preached a few messages from Hebrews, but but never have done a series. So it's high time that we did a deep dive into this book called <coughs> Hebrews, and that's what we're going to do. So let's begin by laying some foundation. I wanna call this just an introduction to Hebrews, and I think this will be helpful as we go along to understand it better. Hebrews is vital for our understanding of how new covenant believers are supposed to relate to the old covenant. You might call it a bridge book. It's a key book for understanding how we relate to the old covenant. Now, just a curious little fact, I don't wanna spend much time here, but nobody really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's unusual because most of the books in the New Testament bear the writer's name. All of Paul's 13 letters, they have his name in them. Peter tells his name. The book of Revelation says that John is the one who received this revelation and so forth and was told to write it down, what he had seen and heard. But Hebrews doesn't have the name of the author. Now, if you have an old King James Version, like the first Bible I ever received, it says the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. And in some of the Textus Receptus lines of manuscripts, Paul's name was inserted there as the author. And so scholars debate back and forth because it does have some of Paul's common language in it, but it also has a lot of language that is not used in the 13 letters that we know Paul wrote. Well, we're not gonna spend any more time on who wrote it. Some suggest it was Apollo, some the Apostle Paul, some suggest Barnabas or some other early church leader. We don't know. The ancient church leader Origen, who was one of the early theologians in the church, said God only knows who actually wrote Hebrews. But I want to hit you with a fact here that I don't, I don't know if you've ever pondered. Think about this for a moment. Most, if not all, of the earliest Christians 
were Jewish. Have you ever thought about that? Let it sink in for just a moment. Now later, there were tons of Gentiles, non-Jewish followers of Jesus, but most, if not all, of the earliest Christians were Jewish. So there was a question that arose in the early church that threatened to rip the church absolutely apart. Here was the question. As we follow Jesus now, how much of this Old Covenant stuff, this Old Testament stuff, are we supposed to hang on to? How much of it is still relevant for now, and how much of it should we just kind of move on from and say, well, we don't need to do that anymore? Very practical question. For instance, do we still go to the temple and offer animal sacrifices? Uh, do we still need to observe the feast days like Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Booths and so on? Here's a good one. Can we go down to the local barbecue joint and get a pulled pork sandwich? Now remember, under the Mosaic Law, they could not do that. You couldn't eat pork. You couldn't eat clams, oysters, shrimp, any of that stuff. So is it still prohibited or not? And here's a, here, here's a one that became very real for parents. Do we have our male babies circumcised on the eighth day? Now, under the Mosaic Law, we, we had to do that. But as followers of Jesus now, is that still valid? And so these questions just swirled in the early church. Now, ultimately, they had a council to try to settle this. Acts chapter 15, you can read about some of the conclusions they came to. But it essentially amounted to, do we tack Jesus on to Judaism, or is this a brand new radical thing? Now, I don't wanna beat this to death, but I do want in these introductory comments for you to get an appreciation of how significant this would be for people who had been Jewish, who were Jews, and who were beginning to follow Jesus as their Messiah. But also, what about the Gentiles? I mean, soon, tons of Gentile people began to be followers of Jesus too. What are we supposed to tell them? Do they skip all the Jewish stuff? Or do they have to become a good Jew first in order to follow Christ? These were the kinds of questions that rocked the early church. And it became contentious. I mean, people began to split and divide over this, just like Christians divide over political issues and cultural issues and some doctrinal issues today. And there was a group of people who strongly believe that no, the Old Testament stuff, bunch of it is still valid, and they were known as the Judaizers. Now, here's what they did. As Paul went and started churches in new cities and left behind a bunch of Gentile, brand spanking new Christians, they would follow him to those cities after he left, and they would create all kinds of turmoil. Here's, here's basically what they would do. Hey, uh, you know this Paul guy? Oh, he's a wonderful guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's so sharp, but 
We're afraid he didn't tell you the whole story here. So, so let us fill in what he didn't tell you. By the way, did he tell you that you still need to follow all the feast days? Oh, he didn't tell, oh, I'm sorry. He, he, should have, he should have told you that because that's still valid. And they would say to all these Gentile men, by the way, did Paul tell you guys that you have to be circumcised? And there was a gasp among all the Jewish men, uh, Gentile men. And they're going like, what, now? We've got, in order to follow Jesus, we've got to go and be circumcised? Bummer, he didn't tell you that? Wow, he should have told you that because that's really, really important. You can read it right here in the Old Testament, okay? And so these people drove the Apostle Paul half crazy. And by the way, he became really exasperated with them. To give you an example, in the book of Galatians chapter five, and you can read this on your own, chapter five, verse 12, he gets so exasperated about these Judaizers telling people that, these men that they had to be circumcised, he says, as for these agitators, referring to the Judaizers, I wish they would go the whole way and just emasculate themselves. Woo. Boy, Paul is getting edgy here, but you can sense how frustrated he is. But let's try to have some compassion on these Jewish Christians who are now following Jesus, see? They had a lot to overcome, didn't they? I mean, think about it. Their whole life has been oriented around the temple up until now. Their whole year is in a rhythm that follows all of these Jewish sacrifices and feast days and festivals and rituals. And to just suddenly stop doing all that seemed to be really difficult. But it really, really came to a head after 70 AD because in 70 AD, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Titus, the, the general, laid siege to the city. The temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, listen, let me speak a word, especially to those of you who are Jewish believers. Now, the book applies to Gentiles as well, but especially let me encourage Jewish believers who are tempted to just kind of drift back into the old ways. I'm here to tell you, he says, it's better now than the old. I'm here to show you that there is a new and better way that Jesus has brought to us. By the way, I would suggest that the word better is the key word in Hebrews, it appears 12 times in Hebrews 6 through 12, those chapters. In 11 different verses, you'll see the word better. And it describes, and we'll look at these, it describes all the better things that Jesus has brought. Jesus, in the new covenant, has brought you something far better than all the rest, than all that old stuff. So with that as an introduction, I want us to jump in now with both feet into chapter one, verse one, and I want us to kind of immerse ourselves into this book. And let me just tell you, uh, I'm gonna be using a translation I don't typically use. I usually use the NIV 84. I'm gonna be using a, a, the New American Standard that was done back in 77, and here's why, because it's the one I'm most familiar with, all right? 
I memorized this about 35 years ago, and I've been dwelling with it since then, rehearsing it at least once a week. And so if you're okay with that, I sure hope you are. Uh, I'm gonna be using that translation, okay? So here's the first thing I would say. God has spoken to us with a better revelation, his son. Let's pick it up right here in Hebrews chapter one, verse one. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now, any faithful Jewish person would get that, right? Because if you know the Old Testament, you're familiar with the many different ways that God has spoken in the past. But verse two says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Now everyone, please listen up. The God that we serve is a self-revealing God. If God did not reveal himself, we'd be in trouble because we couldn't figure out enough about God on our own. So he reveals himself in a couple of major ways, one through general revelation and the other through special revelation. It's important for us to understand. General revelation is things like creation and conscience, okay? We look at creation and we know something about God. Boy, he's powerful. Wow, there are these certain attributes of God we can figure out from, and we look at our conscience and go, wow, why is it that everybody has these moral categories? A general sense that this is right and this is wrong. But please hear me today. General revelation is not enough for us to see God in all of his clarity. It takes special revelation for that. And that's what God gave us in Christ. In commentating on verse one and verse two, Kent Hughes, one of the many commentaries and resources that are mentioned in your bibliography, says this so well, I wanna read you a section from Kent Hughes' commentary. He says, the emphasis here is on the grand diversity of God's speech in the Old Testament. God utilized devices to instruct, great devices to instruct his prophets. God spoke to Moses at Sinai in thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in a still, small voice. Ezekiel was informed by visions and Daniel through dreams. You can read about that in Daniel chapter two and all throughout the book of Daniel. God appeared to Abram in human form and to Jacob as an angel. God declared himself by law, by warning, by exhortation, by type. We're gonna look at types next Sunday. Don't want you to miss that. It's an important principle in understanding scriptural truth, and by parable. And when God's seers prophesied, they utilized nearly every method to communicate their message. Amos gave direct oracles from God. Malachi used questions and answers. Ezekiel performed bizarre symbolic acts. Haggai preached sermons. Zechariah employed mysterious signs. Final paragraph. 
The significance of this immensely creative and variegated communication is that it dramatically demonstrated God's loving desire with, to communicate with his people. By the way, that has not changed. God always was a communicating God, and he still is. He loves us so much. He cares for those who trust in him. As Nahum chapter one, verse seven reminds us, he cares for you. He wants to communicate to you. He's not trying to hide and keep you in darkness. Okay. It is never hackneyed, never boring, never inscrutable, never irrelevant. It was always adequate for the time. It was always progressive, revealing more of God in his ways. It was always in continuity with the previous words of God. I love that. Hughes says it so well. But now is a brand new era. A new day has dawned. As impressive as all that past communication was, here's the point of Hebrews. God is up the ante now. He's done even better than that. And there's two aspects to this new revelation in Christ that we need to consider. One is who he is. Who he is in his person. Chapter one, verse three says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I've been putting it like this to you for many years. He is the perfect God-man, fully God in his deity, fully man in his humanity. Now, we don't have time right now to delve into the mystery of the Trinity, that God is three in one. But if you want a verse that really talks about Jesus as being divine, and many people, of course, today, it's a, one of the most common heresies in the world today, that, ah, oh, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't divine. And many will even go so far as, Scripture never claims that he was divine. Nobody ever says that in the Bible. Here's a verse you need to know, Hebrews 1, verse 8. Look at what it says here. But of the Son, he says, this is God the Father speaking, Thine throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. That's God the Father speaking to God the Son, calling him God. So please understand, Jesus had a dual nature. He was never less than God regarding his being, his identity. He was completely and totally God. Hope we understand that. Equal to God the Father, equal to God the Spirit. And yet, as he lived on this earth, he was fully human. At the same time, subject to all the limitations of humanity. When he was a little baby in that manger, he got hungry. When he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, he was ravenous. When he was on the cross, dehydrated, and said, I thirst, that wasn't for dramatic effect. He really got thirsty. He was dependent on God, his Father, to sustain him. Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself, he said on three different occasions. The Father in, is in me. He's the one who does the work. 
Now that's inspirational to me because I'm not divine. And if Jesus overcame all the temptations, if Jesus did all these amazing things he did merely as God, I can't, I can believe it, I can appreciate it, but I can't draw any inspiration from that because I'm not. But if Jesus, as fully human, dependent on his Father to strengthen and sustain him, lived the life he lived, then that's inspirational to me. We are called, brothers and sisters, to be dependent on the Father as well. So he's spoken to us in who the Son was, but secondly, in what the Son has done. Verse three, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Catch this phrase, when he had made purification of sins. That's referring to his atoning work on the cross, dying so that my sins and yours could be forgiven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, that's better. In the old covenant, they just had this covering of sins that was temporary. But Jesus has come with this once-for-all sacrifice. He's made purification. He's made true forgiveness possible. And he took away, as we will see in the coming weeks, all the need for that temple, all the need for that sacrificial system, all the rituals, all the symbols, all the sacrifices, all the buildings, all the elaborate priesthood and all that went with it. Because Christ himself is the fulfillment of all these things. Now let's get really practical for a moment or two here. And by the way, one of the reasons I believe people don't preach from Hebrews as much as some of the other books is because it requires, listen now, it requires God's people to up their thinking a little bit. It requires them to raise the level of their theological wrestling a little bit because there's some controversial passages in there. We'll see some of those. There's some challenging theological ideas and we'll wrestle with those. So get ready. Are you ready to increase your theological understanding? I hope you are because that's where we're going in these weeks. But make no mistake, this is not gonna be an exercise for Bible eggheads. Because it's going to get real personal real fast. And it should always be that way, shouldn't it? Shouldn't theology always drive behavior? It should. Shouldn't theology always be the thing that drives our practice? That's the way God designed it. So here's my final major declaration to you today. God's better revelation in Jesus creates responsibility for us. When God creates things, it gives a responsibility to us. Now, there are two things I wanna highlight for you right out of the text. Our first responsibility, since we've got it better now, and boy, that's good news. I'm so glad we're not still under that old system I'm so glad we don't have to be bound by all those ceremonial rituals and rules and regulations, okay, that went with the temple and all the accoutrements of it. But don't get the idea that that means now, hey, 
It's just all que sera, sera. We don't have anything to do. No, we have greater responsibility. So the first thing he says is, we've got a responsibility to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We're in chapter two now, chapter two of Hebrews. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Notice the warnings that start coming here that go with the responsibility. The warnings. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Did you catch that stern warning there? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I pondered that idea of neglecting this week. And I want to camp out there for just a moment because I believe this is where it gets real personal real fast. To neglect the word of God, his salvation and all that goes with it, in its ultimate outcome is no different than outright rejecting the word of God. Let me illustrate. If I'm sick physically, and I, I don't have a clue what it is, but it's really bad, and I go to my medical doctor, she's going to examine me and likely prescribe some medication. So she'll say, here's a script. I want you to go down to your pharmacy. I want you to get the script filled. And I want you to take two of these capsules a day. And I'm confident that in a week or less, you will be much better. Let's suppose I look at my doctor and go, you know what? Thanks a lot. I appreciate you and all of your sagacity and professionalism and insight. But I'm going to reject that. Not gonna do it. I reject your medicine. I reject your advice. In fact, my attitude is if you leave these kinds of things alone, they just have a way of working themselves out and getting better. That's one approach I could take. I could reject the medicine. But there's a second approach I could take. I go to my doctor. She gives a script. I could go get the script filled at my pharmacy. I could proudly take my medicine home and even display it on the ottoman in the middle of our living room. But I never take a single capsule. A friend comes over and I say, hey, this is my medicine right here. Doesn't it look impressive? Wow. Look at that label on the bottle. It's amazing. My doctor says it'll make me well in a week or less. Well, how often do you take it? Well, I'm supposed to take two a day, but... I haven't taken it at all. Here's my question for you. Which is worse? In the first path, I reject it outright, arrogantly. In the second path, I seem like I accept it, but I just neglect it. Which is worse? I would suggest to you that the outcome is absolutely the same. The outcome is it does me no good. Now, here's the application for us. I've met people in my life right here in the Capital District and beyond who, when it comes to the word of God, they are rejectors. Have you met some of these people? 
They spit and complain and denounce the word of God as bogus. I want nothing to do with that bunch of garbage. That's what they say. I know people like that. On the other hand, I know a bunch of church people who would never think of rejecting it. Oh, they come to church. They sing the songs. They smile. They proudly display their Bible for all to see. But when it comes to taking God's Bible medication, they simply neglect it. Whether you reject it or neglect it, the outcome is the same. It does you and me absolutely no good. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I believe the biggest challenge for many of us, and I'm speaking to myself now as well, hear me, I'm in this with you, is that we know what the medicine is. We've read it. We get it. We proudly say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we don't take the medicine. And if we don't take the medicine, it does us no good. Could that be you today? Listen, tomorrow morning, when Monday comes around and you face your first crisis, I got a question for you. This gets real personal real fast, doesn't it? What are you gonna do? When you face that first challenge on Monday morning, whether it's at your home or at work or on the north way, on your way to work, whatever it is, are you gonna ask now, what does the Lord tell me to do in this situation? And then do that. See, that's what real disciples do as they continue to grow in their walk with Christ. They take the medicine of God's word, they apply it to their lives. And the book of Hebrews has a number of warnings as we're going to see in this really exciting series. I think it's going to literally rock us to the core of our souls. But here's the first warning. Chapter two, verse one. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So that's our first responsibility. Since we've got it better than they did, we better pay much closer attention well, I've heard, here's the second responsibility we've got. Here it is, to not harden our hearts. Chapter three, verse seven and following says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter three, verse 10 says, they always go astray in their heart. What is that talking about? He's talking about that time in the wilderness. Those are quotes, by the way, directly from Psalm 95, which was a call to worship in the synagogue. Hey, everybody coming to worship, if you hear his voice today, as scripture is read, as prayers are prayed, as songs are sung to God, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts now. That's what they heard every week as they came to worship. What does that mean? What does it look like to harden your heart? The heart that does not pay attention to what God says and apply it, take the medicine, becomes a hardened heart. 
And here's the danger. A hardened heart becomes a straying heart. Brothers and sisters, this is is serious stuff, okay? As I'm speaking this very moment, as God's word is being read and proclaimed, one of two things is happening in our hearts today, right this very moment. As you listen to the word of God right now, your heart is either becoming softer or harder to the things of God. It's either becoming more malleable and responsive to God's word, or it's becoming more resistant and more recalcitrant toward the things of God. And if we don't obey and respond to what we know, our hearts are imperceptibly hardened to the things of God. Oh, you may not know it. When you, you'll never walk out from a worship sermon and go, I just hardened my heart. You'll never know it. It's imperceptible. But whenever we don't pay close attention to it, whenever we don't have a heart that's open to really hear and obey God, imperceptibly our heart is hard. And and here's the thing. It's like the frog in the kettle syndrome. It happens so slowly. It happens so incrementally. You don't even realize it. But soon you're going, why am I not really hearing from God anymore? Why is God seeming so distant these days? And that, my friend, is a scary place to be. So as we wrap up today, I wanna give you three catalytic questions that are always good for us to ask when we're approaching the Lord, when we're approaching his word. Question number one, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to know about yourself, about myself, about all that I have in you, about my purpose in life? What do you want me to know, Lord? Open up my understanding here. Friend, that's an important question because I wanna tell you something. Every problem you've got today, listen to me right now, every problem you've got is somehow connected to an inadequate understanding of who God is. That's the truth. So God, what do you want me to know? Second question, what do you want me to receive? Is there some insight some illumination, some wisdom, some new injection of your manifest presence that you would like for me to receive today, whatever it is, receive it from God. Third question, what do you want me to do? Is there some obedience that I should engage in here? Something I need to act upon in my life? And if you ask those three questions, Lord, what do you want me to know, receive, or do? it is very unlikely that you will begin to harden your heart. So as we close today, I wanna invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just right where you are. Would you bow your heads, please? Just pray this prayer to God right where you are, right in your own soul and heart. God, have I I become hardened Lord, is there some area of my life where I'm just, 
I've just hardened my heart to you. Lord, would you please soften my heart? Pour yourself into me in such a fresh, new way that I'll be so sensitized to you and your guidance, your presence, and your power. Lord, help me this week to be so responsive to your voice that I would give people the right impression of who you really are. Thank you, Lord. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.